Again, I apologize for the voice. I know it's not pleasant to listen to. It doesn't hurt me nearly as bad as it hurts you. I promise. John chapter 1, verses 29 through 34. And the next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain this is he who baptizes with the holy spirit and i have seen and borne witness that this is the son of god let's pray together our father We know that you love to show us who you are. We are told in your word that you reveal yourself to us, that we might know your will, your good, pleasing, and perfect will, that we might worship you, we might obey you by the power of Jesus. And we do ask now, yet again, that you would help in that task. Give us eyes to see the scriptures. Give us ears to hear your word. Give a voice to proclaim it that Christ might be all and in all. We pray in his name, amen. One of the most fun things in parenting, I mean, delightful things in parenting with little ones, is being able to teach them about the wonderful and awe-inspiring kind of moments of grandeur in life. To be able to sit with them and to help them understand those things that kind of blow our minds. of Like, oh my goodness. One of the things we've done in our home is to sit down and, and look at, you can see it on YouTube or a thousand other places, but where they, they start with a picture of the earth and then zoom out to see how big the earth is in comparison to the sun. And then zoom out to see how big our sun is in comparison to the next biggest star. And in comparison to the next big, and, in compa- and by the time you get to the largest known star, you can't even see the sun, much less the earth. And it's fun watching the, the children as their minds kind of are opened and expanded. And they're like, this is amazing. Yes, I know. I've been enjoying it for years. It's fantastic. <laughs> or when you look at the sea creatures of the deep. The things that God has made, or, or watch an octopus, the way its camouflage works. You, know, you can see its camouflage, and it, it changes to look just like a rock, and then it's a different color, and it's fantastic. And it's fun as a parent, sitting with a child, and watching that kind of moment of wonder as they begin to understand part of God's world, and begin to understand the significance to understand the, the, the grandeur, the scope, for actually, lack of a better word, to understand the glory. And in John, the whole book, but particularly these first chapters, 
God the Father is doing that with us. It's through his word that he's, in essence, come and sat with us and said, it's time for me to show you my glory. Now, you're not going to understand all of it. You're not going to comprehend all of it. You're going to read it a thousand times, should the Lord preserve your life that long. And you'll constantly learn learn new things. But this is a lesson, an exercise in glory. And the Holy Spirit and John being very excellent in their writing skills, obviously Holy Spirit is God, is writing this one to capture that sense of grandeur and glory and to, to kind of blow our minds as we interact with who God is, but at the same time also challenge us to think about our standing before Jesus. To think about who is this Christ? Who is this Jesus Christ? And what do I think about him? What do I believe about him? And how do I live in light of him? This twofold kind of purpose of John of capturing glory and challenging belief. And thus far in the passage, it is centered around one thing and one thing only. The person of Jesus Christ. Now the fun part here is he begins to expand it a little bit, much like the illustration where we started looking at the size of the earth in comparison to the sun, and now he backs out just a little bit. And now we look at Christ not only in his person, but now also in his function. What is he here to do? Not only who is he, but what is he doing? And so we pick up in the text here, and as we've said, John, the very beginning here, it's the next day, the next day, the next day. He's telling this story to parallel Genesis 1 to remind us that Christ is the agent of creation. And upon his arrival here, it's kind of rehearsing, it's, it's replaying, it's reminding us of what has already taken place. This one particularly, we actually know it's fun. John is assuming that the reader already has access to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, or at least two of them. He's assuming that we've had a chance to read those, and he's telling us kind of the highlights as he strings them together. We actually know from Matthew, Mark, and Luke exactly which day this is. This is the day he comes back out of the desert after temptation. You remember this, the ministry of Jesus. His ministry begins with baptism. The Holy Spirit descends upon him. And immediately after baptism, what does he do? He goes out into the desert for one-to-one, mano-a-mano warfare against the devil himself. And he has all of the most spectacular temptations thrown at him. Many of which are, at their very essence, the most cheeky of things I could possibly imagine. <laughs> to tempt Jesus to just slightly and cleverly stop being human. Just don't be fully human and give in. And after King Jesus wins his victory over the devil, the angels minister to him. He comes out of the desert and we pick up here. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and John says to the folks around him, behold, and again, that, that, I can't yell, my voice isn't here, right? But it's, it's that one that's it's supposed to kind of grab you by the collar and kind of make you pay attention. That's why it's in the text. 
that's where you're supposed to kind of shout as a preacher to make everybody's heads come up. Go, oh, I can't believe he's getting that excited. I thought we we're, were in a Presbyterian church. Why is he raising it? That's, that's what it's for. Behold, pay attention what's introduced next. This one that you see walking in over the hill, he is the Lamb of God. And honestly, for most of us today in suburbia, our closest affiliation with a lamb is either a mental image of a cartoon character of some kind or a petting zoo. That's really what we think of. I mean, we don't have a whole lot more, most of us don't have a whole lot more experience with lambs. And the last time I saw a lamb was probably a decade ago. I don't, I don't spend a lot of time out on the farm. But for the Jews, that would not have been the case. When a man comes walking over and the prophet introduces him and says, Oh, by the way, this is the lamb and not just the lamb. This is God's lamb. They would have had all kinds of thoughts that immediately come streaming into their minds. And for American, I mean, it would be like sitting in the South and saying the Civil War was entirely fought over slavery. And they have so much thing, automatically your brain is filled with all kinds of history. And it is an unbelievably polarizing statement, even in and of itself. And some of you are going, well, absolutely. And some of you are going, well, no, not at all. And that's the whole point. It's a term that would do the exact same thing. It would stir up all kinds of thoughts in the listeners so that they're immediately having their brains kind of filled with the Old Testament and trying to sort it out and go, what on earth is he saying? Jesus is the Lamb of God. And the Lamb in the Old Testament would have brought two ideas. First would have been the idea of purity. That when you would say a lamb to an Old Testament Jew, their first thought would be this this is an idea of purity attached to it. They use lambs all of the time in worship. Sacrifice in the morning, and in the evening, and twice on Sunday, or Saturday for them. But but that's their pattern of living. And their whole worship structure is built around the lamb, and the lamb always had to be pure. You remember we've been in the Old Testament not long ago in preaching, and one of the great criticisms is that they're offering blemished lambs. God condemns them. He damns them for offering blemished lambs. And so the idea here would be, behold, here comes the one that is the purity of God. Wow, that is a statement right there. I mean, that is a statement. There's no kind of equivocating there. There's no ambivalence. There's no kind of mushiness or like, maybe, no. This one you see coming over the hill, he is the purity of God himself. Wow. But see, that's not the only idea that a lamb would have brought up. That's one. The other thing, and this is unbelievably interesting for Jews, is the second idea would have been contradictory to the first. The first is the idea of the lamb is purity. The second would have been the idea that the lamb is the sin bearer. Because the function of the lamb in their worship was constantly to be the image, the portrait, the symbol of the sin bearer. 
that when it's time for Passover, what do we do? We slay the lamb in remembrance of the time when the Lord used the lamb's blood to save us back way back in Egypt. It's almost Passover time, actually, when this is happening. It's just a matter of days before, weeks before. In the worship service weekly for them or daily for them, when they, they have the sacrifices offered morning and evening and then twice on Saturday, it was the sacrificial lamb that was the portrait of the sin bearer. Their sin was placed upon the lamb and the lamb's blood was shed. You may not have caught it, but we already just sang that, not all the blood of beasts. It's one of my favorite hymns in terms of the image it captures. Those middle stanzas, you may not have paid attention. I stand there like a penitent. I place my hand upon, not a lamb, the lamb of God. And instead of the lamb, some little fuzzy, stinky, obnoxious creature being killed, it was the Savior that was killed and my sin was passed on to the sin bearer. These two themes immediately stirring up for the Jews with this title. This one coming, he is the Lamb of God. He is both the purity of God and he is the sin bearer from God. Introducing at the very first chapter the function that would be fulfilled all through the rest of the book. Christ is the purity of God and the sin bearer from God. And it's important that we recognize as believers this is specifically addressed right after he takes on his formal ministry. John's teaching us an important lesson here. That Jesus, as he is baptized, he goes to wage war against the devil. He voluntarily understands his mission as the Messiah would be to be the purity of God for the people of God. And to be the sin bearer for the people of God. Both of those things would be required for the Messiah. And honestly, we could stop right there and just sit and think for like months. What does it mean that Christ is the purity of God? And he's the purity of God for me. I mean, let's be honest, some of us converted early on in life, and I pray for all of the wee little ones in here, that's their story, and they have no days remembering what it's like to not know Christ. However, there are many or not, that's their story. And many from both sides that struggle with a constant feeling of filthiness and uncleanness. That struggle with that constant feeling of unworthiness before the Lord, that feel that constant guilt, that damnation, that condemnation that sin brings. Now, if you're not a believer, that is a correct struggle. If you don't know the Lord, you, you, you actually are damned before Him. You are condemned before Him by your sin. And all of that filthiness and guilt you should feel. But if you are a saint, we are cleansed. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because He is our purity. He has accomplished it that we might be cleansed, not just legally before the Lord, but also 
spiritually and daily and practically. He would be the sin bearer. He would be the one that would pay for all of those evil things that I have done that I might actually be doing right now. It's a bad sermon. Or the things that you do in the future. He covers all of those. He pays for all of those. He redeems you from that condemnation. But John doesn't stop there. That's his kind of introductory title. That's the the big picture. That's the principle that governs the rest of the passage. Jesus is the Lamb of God. But he continues saying next that not only is he the Lamb of God, he's actually sent from God. This is he of whom I said, look, this is the one I told you already. After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. The one who's following, this one that's coming, this one that you're going to see, he's bigger than me, he's better than me, he's greater than me. And the reason was, even though he's younger than me biologically, he's before me because he made me. He's the great and mighty God. He was sent by the Lord. He was commissioned by God. He's the anointed. And that actually is one of those things that for many of us is kind of a, well, duh, point. I mean, he's the Lamb of God. He would be sent by God. Well, that kind of makes a little bit of sense. I don't understand why you're talking about this. And again, because actually what it reflects about the character of the Lord, that he is so committed to the salvation and the well-being of his people, he's not going to leave it up to them or leave it up to chance. That's an important point to reflect upon, that the Lord is so committed to your salvation He's so committed to you walking with him, being transformed by him, looking like him, having life in him, having forgiveness of sin in him, having peace of conscience, having kindness in him. He's so committed to you being transformed. He's not leaving it up to you. And for those of us that are actually honest about our own abilities, that should be an unbelievably comforting statement. I mean, for those that have been believers for a long time and you find yourself confessing the same sins now that you confessed five decades ago, and you're like, I would think that I would have grown out of this. I've had a half a century. I haven't. But I would think I would have. It should be comforting because, yeah, you're absolutely right. You probably should have, but you haven't. And if your salvation was dependent upon you, you would be in dire trouble. If your hope before God, either for salvation, conversion itself, or even for continued growth, depended upon you, you would be in so much trouble. And yet the Lord shows, he demonstrates, he's so committed to salvation and sanctification for his people. He's so invested in it. He's sending his son to make sure it happens. To make sure it's accomplished. To make sure it is unalterably secured, inalterably secured. To make sure. You've heard me say before, but I love this. 
I'm convinced at the end of Romans 8, Paul's saying, I'm convinced that neither height nor depth, angels, demons, principalities, there's nothing in all of creation. It's my one kind of quibble with Paul's writings. I wish he had added in there my own foolish self. Nothing in all of creation can separate me from the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus. And it's, I'm certainly included in that part of creation. But that same idea, look, God is so invested in my salvation, it can't be broken. Christ will accomplish it. He's sent by God. He's sent by God. <clears throat> now, honestly, if you've been around the church a while, you, you see that there is this kind of natural temptation for people to try to uh, privatize salvation, to make it so much that they can kind of control it, that it, it becomes so personalized that it's mine, that I can maybe kind of manage God my way. Now, we never say it in such blunt terms, but it's this idea that God is not great, he's not big, he's kind of like manageable. And John, again, even goes so far as to kind of correct that mindset here, saying, look, Jesus is the Lamb of God. He is the purity of God. He's the sin bearer of God. He's sent by God with all of the rank and authority of uh, Trinitarian divinity. And if humanity thinks they have anything worth bragging about, the next verse undoes it. As the greatest human in human history, apart from the Lord Jesus himself, says, oh, by the way, (laughs) in my own abilities, even I didn't know who he was. The one who was converted in the womb, who is his actual family, who was raised knowing his entire job would be to pave the way for the Messiah, who has in some cognizance, some sense known who the Messiah is, is saying, even in my own abilities, in my own merits, in my own standing, even I don't recognize who the Messiah is in my own ability. Even the one who is the front runner, the the one who paves the way for the Messiah, saying, oh, by the way, the Messiah is following right after me. Even that guy doesn't know who the Messiah is apart from the Lord coming in and working in his mind and illumining him and showing him. So much so, he actually says it twice. 31 and 33. Look, I still, I'm telling you people, I don't know who this is in my own flesh. It took God showing me who the Messiah is. He told me, when I baptized with the Spirit, when the Spirit shows up, that's the guy. And lo and behold, it did. You see, what he's teaching us is that this Messiah, who is the, the Lamb of God, who's sent from God, can only be revealed by God can only be revealed by God. And again, I might just gently poke at ourselves in this regard. It is astonishing how highly we think of ourselves. It, I mean, it is really, it is astonishing the opinion we hold of ourselves. How highly we think of ourselves. I mean, how willing we are to take that thing that we've done like 9,000 times this week and not call it a habit. Really? 
You did it like a thousand times this week. How is that not a habit? I, mean, I would think that would be the definition of a habit. Well, I don't like it, therefore it's not a habit. Our willingness to just assume the best about it is just astonishing. It's mind-blowing how high of a view we have of ourselves. And again, here, so much so that we might even assume we have the ability, even in our own strength, in our own mind, in our own excellence and intelligence, to some way reduce that glory of Jesus just a little bit. To make him just a little bit manageable. To make him just a little bit more accessible by my own ability. To say, well, I know he's the son of God. I mean, I know he is. And I know he was sent from God. I get that. But doggone it, I'm clever enough that I figured that out. See, again, that's that high view of self sneaking in. It's that high view of self creeping in and trying to inflate our own value, to inflate our own abilities, to inflate how we think we are. You see what that's doing is that's your flesh trying to find value in self. It's trying to say, look, I'm so smart. Look, I'm so handsome or pretty. Look, I'm so funny or unfunny, which sometimes ends up being funny. Look, I am so whatever it actually is. I'm so this. I have meaning in this. And John's saying, look, no, you have to have meaning in Christ. You can't find meaning in self. You're so, you, you can't see Jesus. You can't know Jesus. You can't pay for your own sins. The self is the problem. You need to see Christ. Sent from God. Revealed by God. And anointed by God. And John bears witness in 32. He goes back and tells the story again of the baptism. That the Lord Jesus, the very Son of God, the purity of God incarnate, the sin bearer from God actually came and was baptized to have the Spirit of God placed upon him in special measure. That Jesus actually understood the difficulty of his mission so well that he submitted himself to be filled with the Spirit to have all of the help of the Spirit. And again, I just find it so interesting independent we are as creatures certainly as Americans where we like to think we can all do it on our own and here's Jesus the son of God and he can't do it on his own he's doing it with the spirit he has the Holy Spirit descending upon him and empowering him and working in and through him and we're like nah I got this I'm alright it's fine it's no biggie I mean I know Jesus couldn't do things by himself but I'm alright I'm good to go yeah What a mess. Instead, you have Christ who's baptized with the Holy Spirit. And in fact, actually, is baptized with the Spirit. And as part of his uh, messianic, his Messiah function, would then be able to baptize others with that same Spirit. To pass on what was given to him. You see, John here again is calling us to a sense of wonder, of 
grandeur, of, of just marvel at who Jesus is. And I think, appropriately so, maybe three considerations that we need to think of in light of this. Three temptations or ways that we might struggle with this or might fail in light of this. First is the attempt to humanize Christ. And I I don't mean by that to say he's human, because he is. He's also God. But rather to reduce him to normalcy. And we don't do this intentionally. I mean, all of us in here, I ask the question every time with new members, and who's Jesus? And everybody says, he's God, he's great, he's big, he's powerful. No one says, well, he's me, thankfully. Never had that answer. I had a lot of things in, in Christian ministry. He never gotten that answer, thankfully. But what we do oftentimes with how we think about him and how we talk about him and how we feel about him is just so small and normal. It's just so small and normal. If you've ever been privileged enough to travel the world and go to like a third world country or somewhere, a developing country or place that's unbearably poor, almost always the thing that is the most difficult for wealthy suburban folks from America, the thing that's the most difficult to process emotionally is what they are willing to tolerate as normal. It's soul-destroying. To be able to stand there and say, oh, you, you know, eating a meal every other day, that's considered normal for you, and you're okay with that. It doesn't bother you. you I mean, you, you'd prefer to eat more, but you're comfortable with those terms. That's normal. I'm like, I'm normal having a snack whenever I want, much less the meals, and maybe four of those. Who knows? What they consider normal. And it's that same kind of moment of shock of saying, we should be a little bit awestruck, a little bit concerned that we take Jesus and we make him so normal and so small. And so boring and so ordinary. And so simple. Again, I've used the illustration before, but it is indeed absolutely my favorite. Nikki and I went to the Grand Canyon for our honeymoon, and I told you, I mean, my first thought when we got up, we drove up over the hill, get out to the Grand Canyon, and my first thought was, it looks photoshopped. It's so normal looking, because I've seen it everywhere. I've seen the pictures, it's so big, I can't understand it, it just looks so small. You see what I did is I reduced it. I made it so much like me, I made it so much ordinary. Instead of getting awestruck by this thing that is so absolutely gigantic, you could dump skyscrapers and never see them again. I made it so boring. And you, many of us do that same kind of thing with Christ. Instead of being kind of overcome with the glory that he contains, being overcome with his purity or his mission, we reduce him in our minds. Now, we don't reduce him in his actual abilities because he's Jesus and he's independent of us. But we see him so smallly. Or a uh, second way kind of maybe that we do this is we actually then, instead of doing that to Jesus, we actually will do that to the Christianity, to the faith as a whole. And we make it so ordinary, and not in, the, in, in, a, in a good way. I mean, it should be ordinary in the sense of it's part of our daily life, our daily existence, every thought kind of passing through that Christian matrix. But rather to make it so beige right? not one thing or the other just kind of there Blah. 
It's that thing that neither adds nor detracts. It neither benefits or uh, removes. It, it is, it's mayonnaise on a sandwich. It does nothing, right? It does nothing. I knew that would be a great illustration right already. People are like, I can't believe you said that. It does nothing to help, right? Mustard, yes. Mayonnaise, no. But we do the same thing to Christianity where we take it and we say, look, we don't think it's going to be one thing or the other. It doesn't dominate my life. It doesn't not dominate my life. It doesn't impact anything. It's just boring to me. And you know the things that are boring to you are the things that have no glory. Those are the only things that are boring in our lives. We get bored of taking out the trash. There's no glory in that. We get bored of vacuuming. There's no glory in that. Do we ever get bored of the things that make us feel special? No, because there's a sense of glory attached to it. We've got the whole kind of mathematical process upside down. And then lastly, our third temptation here, and, and, and some of you are going, in your head's going, well, okay, I mean, that's interesting and all, but honestly, I, if I'm really going to be honest, I just don't really care that much. And that's actually the third one. <laughs> the bigger struggle of indifference. To be able to say, well, okay, Jesus may be the purity of God, and honestly, I just don't care. Or he might be the one who is the sin bearer, and I honestly just really just don't care. I I would actually love it if you were that upfront with yourself. If you were that honest intellectually, it would be fantastic. Because then you could actually deal with it. But the reality, the sad reality is many of us, it doesn't look that honest. The way that it looks for us is we go three weeks and we haven't thought about Christianity outside of church. Or you go in the month of September, how many times did I think about God or Jesus or redemption or salvation or obedience outside of this building? Well, now that's a much bigger conversation, isn't it? It's the same thing. It's just the pragmatic, the practical version of it. To say, I'm so indifferent. It's so boring. It's so blah. It's so nebulous. I just don't care. I'm just going to put it away. And it's something it'll be like, you know what? It's part of my Sunday dress clothes. I got my dress shoes, I got my dress pants, I got my dress belt, I got my dress shirt, and I got my dress Christianity stuck right here in my jacket pocket. And I pull it out and I put it on on Sunday, and then when I'm done, it goes right back in and doesn't show back up at all. And what John is he's challenging us to say, look, if you do that, it's because you are proving you don't understand how big Jesus is. How glorious he is. How grand he is in his person as both the Son of God and human, or in His function as the Lamb of God, the Redeemer of the people of God. The problem is not with Christ. The problem is not with Christianity. The problem is not even with the church, and it has many problems. The problem is with us. That we in our flesh and in our sin grow so bored so quickly. And in a culture that is amusing ourselves to death and has constant stimulation, the challenge is to maintain wonder at Christ. Now this is fun because we actually today have a perfect illustration of that. I love how the Lord, (laughs) he keeps the bar so low for us. It's amazing for his people. I know that faith is all about believing in things that are unseen. And yet, I'm still going to give you something that you can see. I'm going to give you grain and grape. And it's going to remind you of body and blood. So that regularly your church should be reminded 
that you should sit and actively remember that this one who stepped inside time and space, this purity of God would become the sin bearer of God and would remain under the power of death for a time. Now the fun part is death can't win. Death is way too puny in comparison to him. And that is a really, again, a fun thing to think about. It's been a fun one to ponder as I'm you know, sitting there thinking through Grammy and her home going. Death is too small for Jesus, and it's too small for Grammy now. It can't contain her. She's going to raise from the dead because Jesus already has. Christ wins. Now, in this table, we have the same kind of thing where Christ is going to use these ordinary elements, ordinary grain and ordinary grape to do something unusually spectacular. Where he comes and he ministers to us. Now, not physically, we know where he is, he's seated in heaven, but he comes spiritually in a way that we can't see. And he comes in through the faith that is already within us, the spirit that resides in us. And for God's people, this table, eating a pinch of bread and a half ounce of grape juice, and spiritually nourishes us and strengthens us. And functions like an antibiotic for us. Cleansing and killing the bad stuff that's growing on the inside. Saline solution washing away the crud. It's healing and life and strength because it's Christ represented to us. But not just represented, but also present. It's a physical exercise of salvation. Now, the Bible is so clear in holding this sacrament so highly that it also, again, God unbelievably wise and having a low bar for us, recognizes the natural temptation for us will be to not understand this correctly. I mean, the natural temptation is going to be like, I just don't get that. That doesn't make any sense. That's really difficult. And it's kind of the same way we handle with our children. Have you ever tried to explain electricity to a six-year-old? electrons passing through and that is unbearably difficult what it ends up being is if you touch that you fry don't do it right? that really is what it amounts to at the end of the day I can't I'm not clever enough to figure out how to explain electricity to you I can tell you it's wonderful I can tell you it's good I can tell you it is powerful I can tell you it makes my life better on a daily basis I can tell you I would have a tough time existing without electricity but I can't figure out how to explain it to you six year old and so I tell you just don't touch it Funny enough, actually, as a pastor, I find myself in the same situation with the table. It's powerful. It's good. It makes my life better. I can't live without Christ, and he's represented in some way here. But if you don't understand that, please don't touch it. Because it hurts you if you don't know how to handle it correctly. And that's why historically, our denomination, the history of our denomination, going all the way back to Scotland and other places, has said this table's not for certain groups of people. It's not for children. Same way electricity. Not a good idea to combine children and electricity. Not okay. Don't do that. Not because we don't think the children are believers or we don't think they're, they're lovely people or they're handsome or lovely or intelligent or beautiful or fun to hang out with. None of those reasons. Simply because they don't have the intellectual development yet to understand what's happening at the table. Don't take. Second category is a, a person who claims to be a believer but's living in unrepentant sin. 
Meaning, if they're saying, I believe in God, but I'm still committed to doing it my way. Well, the scriptures are abundantly clear. You can't serve two masters. And until you sort that out, you, you shouldn't do this. Because there's a great danger that you're actually not a Christian at all. Or you are a Christian and you're so sick that the medicine itself might really harm you. So spend the time instead reflecting and repenting and, and grieving over what you're doing and saying, you know what, you're absolutely right. I'm being a fool. I'm choosing my own ideas, my own habits, my own passions and my own pleasures instead of Christ's. And that is terrible math because I am a fool. I can't even make myself happy. I'm miserable even in my own decisions. He's the only way to true life. Sit and think about that instead. And third category is for unbelievers. If you don't know Christ at all, it's not your table. Because you can't feed on Jesus if you don't know him. Now, the fun part for that is I actually know the remedy for it. It's very simple. You need to come to know him. And a standing offer. If you think you're in that category, my study's right in the back. Grab my jacket. We'll go have a conversation right after church. I'd love to do that. Let's sort it out. Let's figure it out. But let's make sure that you're taken care of. Why? Because just like electricity, there is great power here because God has commanded it and because God has said he is present. (coughs) This is our chance to remember and to wonder and to praise. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son sent on our behalf to be both pure sinless, righteous, and the sin bearer. Forgive us for trying to create a Messiah in our own image. Lord, that is so foolish. We can't even make ourselves happy. We can't even order our own lives. We make ridiculous mistakes all of the time. Why on earth would we want a Savior to look like us? Rather, we'd love to look like Him, and so we ask that you would work in us. Prepare us for the supper. Even now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.